The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. look at a couple of passages in the Bible um, in relation to the question of, um, of euthanasia. And uh, what I'd like to do is um, consider the, the question of euthanasia first as a kind of killing and secondly um, as a kind of, of letting die. Now we've talked about this before but we haven't spent much time on actual um, biblical cases. And I'll be very brief about this. Um, first passage I'd like to look at is Judges 9, 54 to 57. Judges 9, 54 to 57. And um, here we, uh, well, let me just read it. Um, we have the, this is the story of Abimelech, and, and after his victory, um, let me start with verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Tebez and encamped against Tebez and took it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the people of the city fled to it, all the men and women, and shut themselves in. And they went to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the, the door of the tower and burned it with a fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone upon Abimelech's head, and crushed his skull. Then he called hastily to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman kill me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed, every man to his home. Thus God requited the crime of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing seventy brothers, and God also made all the wickedness of the men of Sechem fall back of their, upon their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. Now, here we have, um, though the author neither approves nor disapproves directly of this uh, mercy killing, uh, the context shows that this is a, uh, um, an unethical uh, procedure, um, trying to make something bad um, look good um, is always ethically a compromise. And here, uh, the idea that a, the woman had killed him seems to be a very bad thing. So he uh, wanted to have his, his armor bearer thrust him through and, 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 and did. So there are a number of references like this in the Bible to actual mercy killing, and all of them. Are, uh, are negative. Um, let's look uh, briefly at 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, um, 3 to 6. 1 Samuel 31. Let me, uh, let me start with the, with the beginning of the chapter. Um, now the Philistines fought against Israel 
And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Machishua, the son of, of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. And, of course, there you have a technical term there. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all the men the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And here you do have more of an of a authorial negative pronouncement in saying that the armor-bearer wouldn't do it because he feared. And you have two kinds of fear here. You have the fear of men, but you also have the fear of doing something unethical. Now, Matthew 27, verse 5. This will be very familiar. Um, Matthew 27, verse 5. When Judas, this is verse 3, his betrayer saw that he was condemned, he repented and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went out and hanged himself. And then, of course, the, they couldn't take the money and put it in the temple because it was polluted. Um, so... Um, they uh, obviously you have a, a condemnation of, of, of suicide. Now, you have here, I think, in this setting, uh, some pretty clear scriptural teaching that um, killing yourself, whether to avoid shame or suffering, um, is something illegitimate. Um, and the command against murder would include, in that sense, uh, the murder of self. Uh, and John Frame points out in some place in one of his books that, well, in his book on medical ethics, that suicide um, contradicts the legitimate self-love that Scripture assumes and commends. And that's been a tricky thing in evangelical circles. Um, Matthew 22:39, Matthew 22:39. Uh, says um, that uh, this, this is this first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And a, a very clear passage on this, very familiar because we often hear it at weddings, is Ephesians 5, 28. Ephesians 5, 28. And here the injunction is to the husbands that they are to love their wives as their own bodies. And he adds, uh, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. Now I say that this has been caused some 
concern in evangelical circles because there is a teaching around that, that says there are actually three commands. Uh, love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. And that Christ, in a sense, is implying that when he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then they develop from that that we should all um, nurture uh, self-love of a proper kind and so on. I don't think that's correct. I don't think the Bible tells us that there are three commands, love God, love neighbor, and love self. What I think the second and great commandment is telling us is that the kind of love you should have for your neighbor is the kind of love that you're typically going to have for yourself in moments like self-preservation or when you have a, uh, an opportunity or, or whatever it might be. Uh, this is not some metaphysical principle of self-love. Um, Paul, and when he's talking to the Ephesians here, he's saying to them, the husband should love his wife um, in a way that is, amounts to the way you take care of yourself. Now, obviously, he's talking about normal people. You can find exceptions. You can find people who don't love themselves, don't take care of themselves, don't love their own flesh. But he's saying, you know, under normal circumstances, we get dressed in the morning. If we have a cut, we, we put a Band-Aid over it. If, we, um, if we're thirsty, we drink. If we're hungry, we eat. Um, we take care of ourselves. Um, that's, that's a normal thing. And we should take care of others as we take care of ourselves. But I think Frame is right that there is a kind of self-love that is implied and that is commensurate with the dignity of who we are. Um, and I would add to that, and you have to say this carefully, because you know if you say it the wrong way, it really can be misunderstood, but I would add to that that the fact that Christ died for us um, means that there is um, a dignity about us. We are such that Christ died for us. Now that's not saying he saw how worthy we were or that he approved of our humanity or anything like that. that he died for us because we were completely unworthy as a matter of fact. But when, when you do consider that he did die for us, then you consider that we have um, a value. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us how great value we are. Um, God knows when every hair from our head falls and, and how much more value are we than the sparrow and, and so on. And um, this fits in to the ethics of, um, of life preservation so that not only is suicide wrong because um, it uh, is, a, is a kind of self-murder, but it's wrong because it contradicts the self-worth that Scripture says we have uh, as, as creatures uh, redeemed in Christ. Two more points with a few more scriptural references, and then um, I want to go right into the living will. Um, the first, and again we've said this a, a lot, um, suffering does not make a life worthless. Or, or putting it another way, um, the fact of suffering, perhaps even very hard suffering, does not mean that you need to seek to do away with that life because the hardship has become of greater weight than the benefits. 
you don't, in scripture, you don't measure life in terms of cost benefits. Um, Romans 8 is a, as you know, a wonderful chapter on the problem of suffering for the Christian. And um, there are many parts of this chapter. One of the, one of the uh, key verses, of course, that Paul, uh, where he's considering his own, his own state uh, in verse 18 he says I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared to the glory that is revealed to us for the creation waits an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God the creation is subject to futility not of its own will but by the will of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God and um, here you have a, quite a balance. On the one hand, the world to come is so far better that it's not worth to be compared to, to our, our present suffering. On the other hand, we don't take a shortcut to get there because we are subject to futility and to hope. And hope is a very important part of the present life. Um, and for whatever mysterious reasons there are that allows that God uses to allow suffering. It involves, among other things, the nurturing of hope in the person who's suffering. And uh, it's easy to say this, and of course it's very hard to, to go through it or to sit by somebody who's going through it. But that's, that is the biblical teaching, that you, though the glory to come is far greater than to be com comparable to the earthly sorrows that we have, yet the earthly sorrows are part of God's will um, as it instills hope in us and um, and we can't therefore seek a kind of shortcut because our, our present life has value and then finally and very closely tied to this our lives are not our own we do not belong to ourselves when Paul addresses the Corinthians on the problem of prostitution in, verse, in uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, among other arguments, he says, how can you go and uh, frequent a, a prostitute? Um, this kind of immorality is a sin against your own body. And then in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This this present life for the Christian is a precious life bought with a price, and therefore it's not ours to do as we will. Now, if this is true, what about decisions at the end of life? What about uh, decisions about the what they call, a bit glibly, the final exit? Um, well, let's, with this setting of, of these scriptural directives, let's look at the living will, and then let's, um, let's go into, let's elaborate this a fair amount, and then come back to, um, uh, to the scriptural injunction. So, let me pass out to you, um, one example of a living will. All right, there are several parts of this, of course. Um, let's start at the beginning. Um, living will declaration. Um, 
All right. Uh, to whom is it addressed? All right. Family, doctors, and all those concerned with my care. Um, any comments on the appropriateness of, of directing this document to, the, to these particular people? Well, let me, let me back up. Let me back up before we get to that. Um, what do we think about the general principle of self-determination in matters of the, the final exit? Where, where is it proper and where might it be dangerous to have the patient or the potential patient be the one to make this kind of decision? Absolutely. You're making the decision, so if, um, if anything, just to begin with, you are trying to avoid putting that burden on other people. Um, now, that of course becomes a question of whether it's legal or not, um, but assuming it is legal, um, then it, you know, that seems, that I think has a lot to, to, to commend it. Any other um, reasons to think that the the person uh, who is going to be the patient uh, would be the appropriate person to make the decision. Obviously, a lot of this depends on the cultural context. We're living in a relatively free country where we have a fair amount of self-determination. Does You can imagine living in some countries, you, you don't decide these things, but um, we do. Well, I mean, who, who else would decide? Physician? Physician or family? And uh, in some societies, I suppose, clergy and so on. Um, I would hate to make a decision that locked me into something uh, that was irreversible, whether or not s uh, suddenly my case improved. Um, I think I would. I mean, this living will tries carefully to state it in such a way that it's only um, in the worst of circumstances, but um, I, as a patient, do not have the competence to know exactly what's involved all the time. And uh, I would hate to say more than, I'd, say, I'd hate to say more than a, a minimal statement. I'm going to show you a document in a minute that, that does a lot more than that. Um, all right. What? Let, let's go on. What? What? Um, what particular condition is in in view here? Incurable or irreversible mental or physical condition with no reasonable expectation of recovery. Okay. What does that mean? How do you How do you measure that? However, on the other hand, you ha you've got to have some sort of parameters. Um, the Quinlan case as I recall, she was in a coma um, and fed intravenously for 10 years. And, um, you know, she was in a vegetative state uh, and there was no reasonable expectation of recovery. Um, she was in, in apparently irreversible mental, uh, or both mental and physical condition, and um, she was just kept going. I, I, I suppose that you always give the benefit of doubt to the side of life, but in a case like that, you just wonder what 
on earth it amounts to to keep some, somebody alive for that long. Um, I know that uh, I would not want to be kept going for 10 years without any you know, apparent consciousness or anything. It seems pretty, pretty absurd. All right, how about this? I direct my attending physician to withhold or withdraw treatment that merely prolongs my dying. Well, and of course, there are different criteria of death. We've talked about, you know, several, including neocortical death, and I've given you some of my objections to, to that, though I recognize that there, there's another point of view. Um, and um, this treatment, this uh, statement doesn't uh, envisage the type of definition. Um, it just says dying. Um, any, any, we've talked about this, but any, any quarrels with the distinction withholding or withdrawing? I mean, that's a huge issue for the modern state, but we have, we've covered it. Uh, with Wenberg, I, I, I would tend to think, in most cases, withdrawing is kind of the um, moral equivalent of withholding in that you're going back to a decision that you should have made in the first place. At least that's the way he puts it. Now, it's not always that way, but it's in most cases. Um, I further direct that treatment be limited to measures to keep me comfortable and relieve pain. So in other words, they're making a big distinction here. It's one thing to preserve your life, which they don't want, but it's another thing to administer medicine that will relieve pain, which I think is reasonable, although, you know, we're in a culture that is against pain and wants to uh, avoid it at all costs. And um, there are times when you need to choose between some pain and much cure. Um, and uh, no pain and no cure, but this is not envisaging a situation like that. Of course, in the uh, pending legislation out in Washington State, we're talking about something very different here. We're talking about a doctor-assisted exit, and this is not pain-relieving medicine, although it, it happens to be the same stuff, but it's not the purpose of it. It's, um, it's euthanasia. Um, this uh, document reminds everyone in this third paragraph here that um, there is a legal right to refuse treatment and we in this country respect that under almost every circumstance. Um, I say almost because um, we don't respect it in when it's a suicide attempt, um, nor do most states allow the children of Jehovah's Witnesses not to have a transfusion and stuff like that? But um, this expresses legal right to refuse to. Therefore, I expect my family doctor and everyone concerned with my care to regard themselves as legally, morally bound to act according with my wishes, and in doing so are free of any legal liability for having followed my directions. Now, you understand that this document is not legally binding. Um, 
Every state except two, however, has accepted the living will as, a, as an indication that is generally um, meant to, uh, to guide the, uh, the hospitals and so forth. So that's saying it's, it's becoming less and less likely that, that anyone could sue for um, going against it. Okay, let's skip the, uh, the next part because I'm going to show you another document in a minute. But let's go down to the, the proxy. Um, what do we think of naming someone to see that our wishes are carried out? We have had a couple of cases at Chestnut Hill Hospital where um, some of the uh, relatives disagreed. And uh, I suppose in that case it would have been helpful for someone to have been de designated. I had one case uh, fairly recently where I think that a daughter thought that it was all wrong to let a person just go and, um, you know, it took her months and months to get reconciled to it. And uh, she finally did get reconciled. And uh, I think one of the reasons she did was because she began to see that it's one thing emotionally to hang on to somebody. It's another thing to uh, force that person to, to suffer more than they need to at the moment of death. I mean, this was a person who was going to die anyway. And it was a matter of keeping him alive for a few more weeks or something like that. And uh, the per she finally came around to seeing that you weren't doing him any favors to preserve him for a few more weeks. Um, but uh, it would have helped to have somebody just designated, I guess. Um, and then signing and, and witnessing. Um, Okay, that's a slightly different thing. Uh, that's durable power of attorney, which um, there's a distinction um, because the living will um, is not as formal and it also has more loose ends to it. Um, a durable power of attorney actually enables legally uh, someone to make the medical decisions for you. Living will is, is basically the wish, even though it's called a will, it's basically, it's, it's, it's wishing. Um, here, I have, let me give you the next thing. Uh, this is a, uh, I just, this makes a distinction between durable power attorney and living will. This is from our, our hospital. They have a whole pamphlet, I'll try to get to the pamphlet at some point. Uh, I should have gone down and gotten some. This is from the, our little pamphlet. Um, your wishes, yeah, but, but, okay, that's right. The only thing is, the living will just doesn't have the binding power, you know, although it is coming to that. Um, here's the distinction. Durable power of attorney has a written statement appointing another person to act on your behalf if you're deemed incompetent or unable to make decisions. It is a legal document. The person holding power of attorney should know you well. In order to represent your best interests, you should discuss treatment preferences, including types of treatment that you do not, you do and do not desire. Durable power of attorney allows your agent to make health care decisions, including consent for treatments and procedures, and gives that person access to information about your medical condition. Even after a power of attorney document is signed, you have a right to continue to make health care decisions as long as you are able. No treatment may be given or stopped if you object. That's, that's quite true. You also have a right to revoke the authority 
anytime by just notifying the agent. Um, durable power of attorney is a legal arrangement. You are, if you're interested in this kind of arrangement, please consult your legal advisor. Um, I had one of these for my mother. They, the nursing home where she was made us, made the family, have a durable power of attorney as a condition of her going in there. You know, and they, they know from experience that that's what you need because the person can go into a state where they're not responsible and, and somebody's got to be responsible. Um, now the living will is a less formal way of stating your wishes. While living wills are not recognized legally in Pennsylvania, that's one of the two states, uh, they do act as a guide for those who may need to make medical decisions on your behalf. A living will enables you to specify what kinds of care you want and don't want. And then they say they both serve as a means to uh, express your wishes. Um, interestingly enough, one of the reasons that Pennsylvania has been hesitating about it, I think it's just been pretty well cleared up, and that is um, the pro-life people have pointed out that you could um, you could use you could misuse the living will um, as a dying pregnant woman uh, to kill a fetus unnecessarily, um, and so they've gotten around that by making some legislation that goes for the preserving of the fetus if possible, um, even if you're going to let the the woman go because of her wishes and so on. So that's one of the obstacles and it's, it's, it's recently, I think, being surmounted. One of the most difficult aspects of this, but I think as Christians it's a good thing, um, is um, having the conversation with the person about your wishes. Uh, I know um, my father sat me down and said, listen, son, um, in the event that um, I should uh, get into a place where I, I can't, I have no control, I want you to tell him, don't keep me alive. And um, I, thought, I think that was hard for him to do. It was certainly hard for me to listen to that, you know, because it's my father. Um, but it was, it, it was good. We both faced the obvious, that he was going to die, well, we all are, and then... Um, we were able to get it out and over with, and then it was done, you know. But that's a hard thing. I know that um, going to somebody you trust and love and explaining that when you die, this is how you want to be treated, is, is just a tough thing, you know. But um, I think it's important. What does it take to set up a car? You've got to get a lawyer. It's a very simple piece of paper. Um, it, it, it's, I think it's only a one-sided piece of paper. Uh, it says, there's an opening paragraph that says, um, I authorize X to be my uh, representative in all medical decisions. Something, it's a little more technical than that, but that's about it. And then you have to notarize it and sign it, and that's it. That's all there is to it. Any lawyer, um, I think probably notaries have these things. Um, so does require a lawyer? Well, it involves a notarization. Uh, we got ours from a lawyer simply because he had the documents. I don't think they're the only people who have it. But it is a legal, it is a legal document. You know, it's, it's a contract. Um, it's not a, a suggestion. It's, a, it's, it's, le it's legally binding. If you make a medical decision that's within the law on behalf of your relative, it, it is required, you know. So, um, all right, now I want to look at this here. 
because the living will states what you want done. The durable power of attorney gives the decision to somebody else. And he may or may not want what you want done. He should. You wouldn't give it to somebody who doesn't, but that, that could happen. Um, look, I just found one. Why don't I uh, give you this thing first? Here's a durable power of attorney. I thought I'd brought one along. Here it is. I understand that my wishes expressed in these four cases may not cover all possible... Oh, yeah. All right. Let me, let me give you the, the rest of it, because this is a part of a, a package here. Let me, let me show you what this is, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Um, this is a, uh, a, a one response to uh, the right to self-determination, which the government is um, mandating that every healthcare institution make clear to the patients. Now, I say this is one response because there, there's some controversial aspects to it. Um, but um, this is a uh, one medical directive form where your desires can be uh, can be uh, enumerated. And if you look at the these four situations, A, B, C, and D, um, you'll find all these options. Um, situation A, if I'm in a coma or a persistent vegetative state and in the opinion of my physician and several consultants have no known hope of regaining awareness and higher mental functions no matter what is done, then my wishes regarding use of the following if considered medically reasonable would be, all right, then it says, uh, well, sorry, the, the printing didn't work very well, a cardiopulmonary resuscitation, uh, mechanical breathing, artificial nutrition, uh, kidney dialysis, minor surgery, blood products, antibiotics, and so forth. You've got all these options. Okay? And then it says, I want, I want treatment. If no clear improvement stop, I am undecided. I do not want. Okay? And they have this for all these categories. Here's the second situation. If I'm in a coma, in the opinion of my physician and several consultants, have a small likelihood of recovering, um, a slightly larger likelihood of surviving with permanent brain damage, and a much larger likelihood of dying than my wishes regarding the following blah, blah, blah. Or situation C, if I have brain damage or some brain dis disease that in the opinion of my physicians cannot be reversed, makes me unable to recognize people or to speak understandably, and I also have a terminal illness, such as incurable cancer, that will likely be the cause of my death, then my wishes are. Or, situation D, if I have brain damage or some brain disease that, in the opinion of my physician and several consultants, cannot be reversed, makes me unable to recognize people and speak, but I have no terminal illness, then here's what I want. Okay? Those are these, those are all the options. Um, and then they have a durable power of attorney. Um, I understand that my wishes to express in these four cases may not cover all possible aspects of my care if I become incompetent. I also may be undecided about whether I want particular treatment or not. Consequently, there may be a need for someone to accept or refuse medical intervention for me in case, uh, in consultation with my physician. I authorize, you know, John Doe 
as my proxy. And then it says, should I, should there be any disagreement between the wishes I've indicated in this document and the decision favored by the above name, A, I wish my proxy to have authority, B, I wish my medical directive to have authority over my proxy. And then they have another thing about organ donation. Now, um, this is one answer to the um, to the uh, self-determination directives. Um, this is one group. I, th I think it's a hospital in, in New England somewhere that has has responded. Uh, There, there's been a lot of discussion about this because there are two, there are two sides to the story. Um, one side is that uh, the patient has rights of self-determination and therefore needs to be informed about all the scenarios that can develop and needs to make a perhaps rather different type of decision um, for each particular scene. Uh, the other side, and there's a fair amount of criticism that's coming in, and I, I guess I would share that criticism, is that this is a lot to ask of a patient. It's a lot to ask of somebody to predict certain variants, you know, dialysis in the case of um, brain damage, but that has no permanent disease attached to it, you know. Well, goodness, how do I know? And it's, it's such a reaction to the 60s or 50s and 60s where the doctor did everything, that now the doctors need to do almost nothing. Um, there was a very interesting article in the um, Journal of the American Medical Association, affectionately known as JAMA, um, by a Dr. Alan Brett, um, August 14th, 1991, quite recently. title of it is Limitations of Listing Specific Medical Interventions in Advanced Directives. And um, the, uh, the summary of the article is, is simply this. Recent events, in, including the Cruzan decision and the passage of the Patient Self-Determination Act, have renewed interest in the strengths and limitations of various types of advanced directives. In one well-known approach, and that's this one I've just shown you, um, the competent person indicates preferences for or against a series of medical interventions that might be considered if the person loses decision-making capacity. However, such lists of interventions may shift attention away from overall treatment goals or may prescribe inappropriate medical care. Moreover, listing specific interventions in advance does not necessarily enhance self-determination or reduce uncertainty in decision-making. And uh, there's a lot of documentation here. Um, and I, I found the article quite, quite convincing. Um, the, uh, the overall health care is not well represented in these self-determination things um, because there are all kinds of goals that involve looking at the entire human being and not just these very, very narrow little decisions. Um, and second of all, uh, it is possible for the 
patient to have no idea what's appropriate under certain circumstances and to prescribe for himself the wrong thing. Plus the fact that medical advances are changing the nature of the game uh, almost every week. And what you decide today might become obsolete in a year, and it requires you to keep up with all the information. And that's just a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask of well-educated people, let alone of people who, you know, don't have any uh, awareness of all this stuff. And um, then his, 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 I thought the point that he made most forcefully was that, in fact, listing uh, these limitations, or li list, listing specific interventions in advance, does not necessarily give you self-determination, nor does it reduce uncertainty in de decision-making. Um, you're not determining what your outcome is by making a decision that you have no competence to make. Um, you're simply adding confusion to, uh, to the story. Um, and uh, so uh, the long and short of it is that there's got to be some kind of, of balance. Um, here's what this man concludes in this, in this JAMA article. He says, um, the, simple, the simplest and most practical solution to the problem of advanced directives is to encourage wider use of health care proxy directives, which designate a specific person as the surrogate decision maker in the event of a m medical incapacity. This approach is not entirely without problems, but an overriding virtue of the proxy concept is its formal acknowledgement of the generally accepted way we already make decisions for the incapacitated patient by enlisting the guidance of the patient's family or other close associates. Nevertheless, some persons may wish to execute a set of written instructions about their medical care regardless of whether they also formally name a proxy to implement those instructions. For such persons and their physicians, selected features of the newer documents may be useful for clarifying the person's perspective. One such innovation exemplified in the medical directive is the use of hypothetical scenarios and so forth. Discussions of hypothetical cases can facilitate an understanding of relevant distinctions between dementia, coma, persistent vegetative state, and may help interested patients to sharpen previously ill-defined views about life-sustaining measures. Another innovation exemplified in the values history documents is to focus on those individual values that might be relevant to decisions about life-sustaining treatment. One of those documents, for example, explicitly asks how the person would view a trade-off between length and quality of life. Another asks whether the person would prefer to limit the amount of money spent on his or her care if doing so would benefit his family. In the final analysis, the most important element in planning for mental incapacity is the quality of communication among patients, families, and health care providers. In some cases, a well-crafted instructional advanced directive may be useful as an instrument to facilitate such communication. But whatever the instrument, its main objective should be to clarify the patient's perspective about life, death, medical care. That objective can be achieved without the encumbrances of a list of specific interventions. When we come back from the break, I want to discuss this, and, and I also want to uh, show, add a little section from John Frame's book where he, he recommends the same uh, thing as, as, uh, the, the, as Brett, uh, and that is the durable power of, of attorney more than the, the living will, and, and, and we'll show why, and then we'll, we'll discuss it.
Um, in his book, Medical Ethics, uh, starting on page 70 or so, he um, talks about the living will, and um, he, uh, he says that a living will is a legal document wherein someone stipulates that extraordinary means may not be used to keep him alive. As we point out, it's not necessarily a legal document, and it hasn't been for a long time. Though it, it, it can be treated as such, according to um, recent legislation. Um, and the purpose of it is to avoid unduly prolonging the dying process. And he says the, 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 the legitimate, the desire for this is legitimate. Yeah, it is kind of cold in here, isn't it? Are those things turning out heat or, co or cold? And so his, his first point is that these are this is the it's a laudable or legitimate goal uh, to uh, shorten the process of dying, and, and he 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 repeats one of his earlier remarks that um, once dying actually begins, you should be allowed to die. And he argues that not to allow someone to die is to place an undue burden on that person. Um, and um, that, in effect, is a breach of the golden rule. Um, but he, he, he has a number of reservations about the living will, some of which I, I share, some of which I don't think I do share particularly. Um, so the first one is, that um, the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary care is not precise. Now, the, uh, the living will uh, that we, we looked at here, it says, I being of sound mind make this statement, if I become unable to participate, if I should be an incurable or uh, irreversible mental or physical condition with no reasonable expectation, um, of recovery, here's what I direct. And then it says, these directions express my legal right to refuse treatment, therefore I expect my family to comply. Nothing here is, is mentioned about um, extraordinary and ordinary care. I think in the older living wills they, they probably did this. In the newer living wills, you don't, um, you don't use that terminology for the reason that he, he quite rightly points out. Um, the directive is, is much more um, precise. If it's incurable or irreversible, here's what I want done. Now, the second thing he points out is hope of recovery is imprecise, and that, of course, is true. Um, does it mean restoration of consciousness or of a certain quality of life? Uh, All right, is that a good reservation? Is that something that should make one reserved about the living will? What do, this particular living will doesn't go into quality of life, especially. Frame says, if we make the document too precise, we may remove from the physician exactly the flexibility he needs to respond adequately. That's um, Dr. Alan Brett's 
objection to that medical directive that we read with all those scenarios. I personally don't consider this an objection. I consider it perhaps a, uh, a necessary area of, of, of fuzziness, you know, but you're going to make this decision no matter what. Somebody's got to decide on the basis of, of hope of recovery. They're going to have to decide something. Um, no reasonable expectation of recovery, I think, is about the best we can do in, in a lot of scenarios. I mean, doctors are always deciding, uh, you know, I mean, if you, you go in for, for um, you know, appendicitis, um, you know, it's, it's reasonable to expect you're going to recover, but they can't guarantee that you're going to make it, you know. Right. I, I think that's right. Of course, the, the, the living will, if, the, if you can find the right language, it should include that possibility. Because all of a sudden, no reasonable expectation of recovery could, you know, it could be reasonable to think that a new cure would do something. Um, chances might be against it, but it's still reasonable to use such a thing. You know, if you find the right language, you can probably get around that problem. All right, um, his third um, um, disclaimer here is, a person's intentions may be different from his desires in the actual crisis. And, and, and a, that's true as long as the person is awake. And, yeah. <laughs> how are you going to... Yeah, it has desires, you know. So, uh, I mean, he cites a case here where a patient wakes up and says, wait, don't let me die. Well, not if, if they do, then you don't let them die. I mean, it is, it, it's pretty hypothetical. You sometimes get the impression that these people haven't been around hospitals much. Um, and then finally, the living will, vague as its language often is, may create legal snarls, demands for court rulings, and so forth. And I would say yes, but so does buying a house or... Of course, this is not the same order of importance, but...